Welcome to this week's episode of the Aussie Nerds Podcast. We're in the middle of Classics Month. And by Classics Month, I mean probably will last a month, but I, I'm just very loose and I have a lot of movies that I want to watch. This week, we're going to explore Orson Welles uh, in the classic movie, The Third Man, with Anthony. How's it going? It's going well, Daniel. How are you? I'm doing well. You're relatively young. Um, why aren't you watching the superhero movies? What's with all the classics ones? <laughs> uh, it just feels like we're getting bombarded with so many of them nowadays. And uh, I've always appreciated movies that have a really good story, really good acting. Uh, I want, um, so I was kind of into, I went to film school uh, in San Francisco. I went to the Academy of Art University where I was introduced to a lot of older films that I have heard of, but uh, never really got into. Uh, so it was really great to see uh, all those. And then I started de developing more of an appreciation for movies, but uh, I still wasn't really into the whole black and white thing. So I think I uh, kind of stuck with uh, movies from the 60s and 70s, uh, movies like Chinatown and uh, uh, A Dog Day Afternoon and uh, Lawrence of Arabia. When your, like, gateway drug into movies is Lawrence of Arabia, you're doing pretty good. <laughs> I actually I actually did hear that uh, podcast uh, of, uh, I can't remember his name, but you talked about Lawrence of Arabia yeah. a few weeks ago. <laughs> Very uh, nice. It's a, fun, it's, a fun, it's a fun podcast. I get to talk about all sorts of movies. Um, with The Third Man. Uh, so this is a mystery uh, sort of the identity of the third man. It's played by Austin Wells. And I have to say that because, like, it's Austin Wells, so we got to talk about him. So he plays the third man, but who the third man is and his identity and his relationship with the uh, dead guy uh, is, like, we're going to keep that a secret. Of course. <laughs> um, I love Austin Wells. I think he's great. <coughs> You hear that story all the time that he did, uh, like Citizen Kane, when he was just uh, younger than probably either of us, I think. And I think, uh, yeah, he was definitely in his twenties. I think he was like twenty-two. Yeah, I thought it was maybe twenty-four, but twenty-two is even more impressive. But yeah, he was in his twenties. He did Citizen Kane, and then he's like, "Fuck it, bitch! I did Citizen Kane. What the fuck do I care?" <laughs> It's great because, like, he started off as like being really, um, really charming and a really good-looking guy, and then he's like, "But I did Citizen Kane, so like, I can just coast for the rest of my career." Oh, you want me to do uh, a reading for War of the Worlds? I will do the most legendary reading ever. People will be talking about this for decades. Because <laughs> I well, he was right about that. <laughs> he's my old man goals. <laughs> Fat, smoking cigars he doesn't care he tells everyone to fuck off it's great whenever he, my favorite story is whenever whenever he got so, uh, someone asked him to sign something he's like uh to whoever fuck you love Orson Welles <laughs> oh. 
when did you first see the third man? Okay, well, I kind of have to start, um, you know, what, when I got into uh, more older films after I graduated college. So I had to uh, move back to Maui because I couldn't get a job after I finished college. And then I, uh, at my parents, I, my father had always wanted to show me the Maltese Falcon because he was a huge, huge Humphrey Bogart fan. So, uh, I, and I had never seen the Maltese Falcon before. I'd seen Casablanca, which is his favorite movie, but uh, the Maltese Falcon is his second favorite and I'd never seen it. So, uh, and when I did, I was, I was just amazed by what I had seen. I didn't know, a, you know, a black and white movie could be all that engaging. And uh, I just ended up wanting to see more and more and more of them and I was never, ever disappointed. And so uh, I, I, I was particularly attracted to the uh, genre of the uh, 1940s, which is called film noir. And basically, they, it, that is a genre uh, that is marked by a mood of uh, pessimism, fatalism, and menace. And uh, it generally applies to American thriller or detective films that were generally made in the 40s and 50s. And usually um, the cinematography is usually black and white, but I think there was some color as well. And I had heard that one of the uh, best was the uh, the Third Man, which I had never ever seen before. But I, I, it was always talked about on TCM, Turner Classic Movies. And uh, one day it was playing, and I just had to see it. So I, uh, uh, so I had the DVR set. I, uh, I was even recording it for that matter. And I just could not believe what I saw. It was really outstanding. <laughs> It's really fucking good. Uh, film noir evolved into me and noir, and um, it's, and it evolved into like people just using those tropes for mystery um, and detective and police shows and movies now. Um, the, I appreciate the cinematography in this a lot. Oh yeah, I could watch this movie over and over and over again just for the cinematography of. It, the stark black and white, it's, uh, it just makes, because uh, it's set in uh, post-war Vienna and the way the movie is shot, just uh, it, the, the city of Vienna just becomes like a character in of itself in the movie. You have, um, have you seen M? Uh, no, I've heard of it. Uh, so that was in Germany um, pre-World War Two. So you could see like the um, the distrust of the government and uh, every and everything that built up to World War Two in in that movie and in uh, movies that came out around that time, but uh, in in M and in the Third Man, because you haven't got color, they really um, everyone knew how to do cinematography and costume design so that every character, like every main character, you could just spot him in a crowd, which is a really interesting thing to do when you're limited to like not having like color to focus uh, your attention on. Right, I see what you mean. <coughs> um, with, have you, um, are you into detective uh, movies as a whole? Uh, for the most part, yes. Some movies, not so much. Others, yeah. I do like a good mystery. Yeah? Uh, this is your favorite one, but what's your favorite, like, trope from that, from that genre? Oh, my favorite trope? Um, boy, that is a really tough question to answer. I don't think I've ever given that really much, uh, uh, much thought. Uh, I think I like, uh, 
essentially the main character who can general who's generally this very flawed individual and he's not even though he's you know combating the evil in the in the world that he lives in that doesn't necessarily mean he's not a part of it himself you can see that in Humphrey Bogart's character in the Maltese Falcon there or uh, or you know if we're going more neo-noir you can see it in Jack Nicholson in Chinatown uh uh, is what I'm saying uh, making sense? Yeah, you, um, the morally gray character who feels exactly. a lot more like the villains than he does the heroes. But it's exactly. the, just the right side of the law. Yeah, barely. <laughs> like, uh, with the third man in this one, the main character uh, is helping the police track down, uh, solve this mystery and figure out who the third man was. And we unlock uh, his loyalty uh, to his old friend who's now dead. And, um, and he has to decide whether or not he wants to join uh, their criminal world or at least leave them alone or join the police. And you, you can feel the, him being torn around that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's, and that's what makes his... Uh, he's not... In that movie, he's not the most interesting character, in my opinion, but it makes him very interesting enough. In fact, uh, nearly all the characters in that movie are, uh, with the exception of the third man, after we finally know who it is, we, they're all a bit, a bit gray. Yeah. Um, in, it said that in Vienna, like, there's a huge, there was a huge black market um, around there. Uh, criminals came from all over the side, all over the... Um, uh, country in order to um, do their business there pretty much unopposed and because of that what um, Harry and his partners uh, including like the third man um, did uh, was so horrible that even in this morally grey um, uh, place in Vienna we um, well, like, oh, no, he has to be stopped. <coughs> uh, do we want to tell them what he did? Oh, yeah. So, uh, so okay, the third man is about Holly Martins, who's played by Joseph Cotton. And he's uh, coming to uh, Vienna to see his old friend named Harry Lyme uh, because, of, uh, because he has a job for him. But then upon uh, arriving in Vienna, he learns from... Uh, the head of the uh, British police, played by Trevor Howard, that uh, Harry Lyme has died and that he was involved in some very dirty business in uh, Vienna. And for like nearly half, until about halfway through the movie, he has absolutely no idea what, uh, what he's done. He's, he only hears from like sources that he was uh, involved in some sort of uh, black market uh, affair and from Harry's uh, former lover, played by Alita Valley as well. Uh, who's still uh, who's well aware of the terrible things that he ended up doing, but is uh, is still uh, loyal to him. And then finally, about midway through, Trevor Howard's uh, character uh, finally uh, tells him that he had uh, stolen penicillin from the city's hospitals and sold them on the black market. And this caused many people, including uh, children, who were suffering from all these uh, these bacteria, these viruses, to to suddenly die. Um, because he was, uh, he didn't just sell them on the black market. He watered them down and made yeah. them pretty much useless. Yes, exactly. And, uh, which is 
just just the worst. No wonder, like, it's it's a great way because like he's like, I don't want to I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to get involved in whatever shit Harry was um, getting involved with before he died. I don't want to be involved in any of this. And he's like, and the detective's like, okay, that's fine. We'll get you a ticket out of here. But before we do, come to this hospital and then you'll just see all the sick kids and the dying kids. And he's like, all these kids are dying. This one's not going to make it through the night, uh, but we'll get you your ticket. And he's like, oh my God, you suck. This is the best guilt trip ever. Fuck you. Bye. <laughs> oh. Actual quote. That guy is really good at manipulating him. It was awesome. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what was your favorite scene? Uh, for me, the highlights are definitely uh, the chase scenes. There are there are two uh, great one uh, ones in the uh, in the movie. Uh, first is when um, uh, uh, when uh, Martin's uh, Joseph Cotton's character uh, gets into uh, an argument with one of uh, uh, Lime's uh, associates. And uh, and that little boy is spying on them. And then later on, they see that the uh, man that the man was killed, and they think he's responsible for it. And a whole chase scene through Vienna ensues, and we get so many uh, amazing shots of uh, both inside and outside of uh, Vienna. Uh, and a lot of it is uh, is used in a medical metaphorical sense. You have a you have a, this giant church, which uh, depending on your interpretation, could either symbolize doom or uh saving grace or and he also runs into a light at one point which can definitely uh be seen as him like escaping uh uh escaping uh doom as well and then there's another one towards the end of the movie uh, the police are chasing down the titular uh third man through the uh through the sewers of vienna which are all just shot so fantastically I, I love the cinematography of the tracing. There's a tracing, uh, there's a part of the tracing where he runs upstairs and we see like, is it a tracing? There's a shot where he runs upstairs and we no, see- No, that was it. Uh, you mean the spiral staircase? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was, yeah and that scene, he, he uh, sort of has like a publishing meeting of his, uh, of his latest novel, but, he's, uh, but this is when he's on the run from the police. So he's a little bit, distracted and the meeting does not go well you can see people uh getting up from their seats and just leaving out of either uh sheer boredom or whatever and uh then the police uh, see him at that meeting and he escapes uh up to this uh winding staircase and out a window into the uh uh war stricken rubble when we see that shot we see the entire spiral staircase and it looks really far away because of the lens that they use and so it looks like like a long uh, way up. So we get a sense that um, he's going to struggle to escape the police because we see how far away he has to run upstairs. And it's also a great yeah, like metaphor for him, like running around in circles. Yeah, it's a, it's a great shot. Um, my favorite is when he's with Orson Welles on the Ferris wheel. Cause this is when his, uh, he doesn't, really grasp like the horribleness of what Orson Welles and Harry Lyme and everyone else is doing. Um, and so he's still like in that gray area where he might join them. Um, and he's on a Ferris wheel and uh, Orson Welles is talking about how all these people are ants and who cares. 
and would it really matter? And I'm just like, is he going to push him out? <laughs> Absolutely. That was... <laughs> for some reason, you can just open a Ferris wheel. I guess that's a thing that people could do back then. Uh, yeah, uh, it's great scene indeed, and that was uh, a great uh, use of the uh, of the of that giant Ferris wheel. And it was used it was used again, I think, in uh, the Living Daylights. That was one of uh, Timothy Dalton's uh, James Bond films, where he and uh, Mariam Dabo, who's uh, Bond girl, and that re- uh, reveal their feelings for one another. And uh, it's almost it's almost shot for shot, like uh, the like that scene with Joseph Cotton and and Orson Welles in The Third Man, and because it's the same location as well. Which one of them is the Bond girl? Uh, that was Miriam Dabo. She was the uh, a concert uh, cellist whom uh, Bond falls for. That's fine. But in The Third Man, shot for shot, they're on the Ferris wheel. Which one of them is the Bond girl, and which one of them is James Bond? Uh, given Orson Welles' charm, you could say that he's Bond, and he's the one, because actually, she's, uh, she's the one at that point who... Uh, who succumbs to his, uh, even though he, he's, she's supposed to be with, uh, with Bond's friend in that movie, uh, she ends up succumbing to him. And you can kind of see, you know, Joseph Cotton almost doing that. Uh, as you say, you know, he's not sure if he's going to join, uh, join this man who, who, uh, who was in cahoots with his late friend or, uh, or not. He's, uh, he seems very tempted and, uh, you know, just the way Orson Welles is projecting that it just, uh, you can kind of see why uh, he's quite uncertain, even though he knows that it's wrong. What's Vienna? Vienna, Austria. Austria. This takes place in Vienna, Austria, but it feels yes, like a very yes. American movie. Um, and you could, and um, the main character is American, I think. Uh, so, and America has got a notoriously bad healthcare system. So I can imagine that the main character is like, well, we have a really bad healthcare system. So I get it. Uh, but then he sees like how bad watering down penicillin is. Because if you're watering down penicillin with actual water and then you're injecting that into your blood, what you're doing is you're injecting water directly into your blood. That's fucked. It's a, Oh, it's it's in in terms of morally gray. It's like fuck you. It's black. It's so bad. I I love this movie a lot, and I wish that we could talk about who the third man was and get into it, but we can't. So let's talk about other things. Uh, have you followed Orson Welles' career? Uh, not uh, too much, but I am familiar with a lot of his uh, work. Citizen Kane, obviously, War of the Worlds, obviously. Uh, that's yeah, I, and he narr- he was such a fantastic narrator of uh, the war. Um, yeah, the War of the Worlds, uh, King of Kings, the Royal. Uh, no, 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 no. What is what is it? Uh, it's uh, hold on. Can I look it up for just a moment? <laughs> Thank you. Magnificent Ambersons, and uh, he did uh, another uh, film noir that I haven't seen in uh, in a while though. That's kind of similar to this. It's. Quite, it's regarded as quite up there. It's Touch of Evil with uh, Charlton Heston. I've heard of Touch of Evil. I've been meaning to see it for ages. Yeah, in that film, he noticeably uh, gained a lot of weight. <laughs> yeah, you can tell because he just started eating like in 
like almost immediately after Citizen Kane. He's like, oh, cool. I'm famous now. Great. I, again, he's our old man girls. Eat what you want. Smoke, drink, say fuck you to everyone. It's awesome to have that much power and people still respect you. Um, there was a, a show that was on in like the 50s and 60s. It was on for like 25 years uh, called What's My Line? Oh, yeah. I, I often watch clips of that show on uh, YouTube. There's, an enti- there's a channel dedicated to like archiving all the episodes. And on one of those episodes, Orson Welles was one of the guest, uh, was one of the guest hosts. And I never I, saw that one. Uh, it's great. He's great. Um, he's openly uh, called himself a ham like Alfred Hitchcock has. Yeah. Uh, I love, I love like we, we put all these people on a pedestal, right? It's like, this is this guy created uh, some of the best horror movies ever. But uh, with Alfred Hitchcock, he created some of the best horror movies ever. But he's like on this, uh, this reality show, this uh, show, this panel show. And he's like, I just like it. I have this new movie coming out this week called Vertigo. Maybe you should see it. It's great. I like it. And then, and then it turns out it's one of the best movies ever made. But on like... It wasn't considered that when it first came out. Vertigo had to... Uh, like a lot like uh, another Jimmy Stewart movie It's a Wonderful Life that uh, that became a classic in time because uh, neither movie was very well received when it was released when you see like uh, Alfred Hitchcock talking about that movie on that show he's like oh I, I cannot deny that I am a ham <laughs> I love him <laughs> he's great <laughs> and then you got Orson Welles who is like, I've created some of the best movies ever. Also Transformers. I was in Transformers that one time. I was weird. Yes. And, yeah, I know. Well, he, he, throughout his life, even though he uh, had some health issues, he never lost his voice. Uh, and actually, uh, according to James Earl Jones, he was actually the first choice to voice Darth Vader in the Star Wars film, but Lucas uh, thought people would know right away who it was when they heard him. So that's why James Earl Jones was cast there. <laughs> I think I'm the only one who who saw uh, Star Wars and was like, wait a minute, is that Mufasa? <laughs> I didn't... <laughs> it's like uh, Luke Skywalker. It took me a while, but I'm like, he's the Joker. That's awesome. <laughs> Mufasa and the Joker. Together at last. <laughs> <sighs> Have you made any of those connections? It's like uh, can I, seeing a like really, what? really famous role, but you're like, from this other role, I know them better. Uh, uh, probably, I think the only example I can really think of is uh, Christopher Lloyd, who's uh, probably best known for playing the uh, mad scientist on uh, in Back to the Future. Uh, but uh, I had known him from Angels in the Outfield when I was just uh, four years old. <laughs> That's so cool. I was a huge baseball fan. So. Um, he was also in, um, oh, was he, in? Uh, he was in Interstate 60. It's a bad movie, but watch it. Or watch it. It might be good. I, don't, I can't remember. Um, I didn't like the main character, but he was in that and it was produced by the same and written by the guys that wrote Back to the Future. So like, you just have random people from Back to the Future. 
Marty McFly is in there for like a minute and a half. Doc Brown is like the main like wise guy off to the side. It's a weird Back to the Future sequel. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> uh, I love Christopher Lloyd. He's a ham. He absolutely is, and uh, yeah, I'm glad he's you know he's starting to uh, appear a little more because he he sort of vanished uh, for a while there, but now he's uh, starting to come back through. Uh, like TV appearances and uh... I haven't seen it yet, but he was in a movie that's on Netflix called um, uh, oh shit, um, it's a time travel movie, right? And obviously uh, intentional casting there. Huh? Yeah, and he and it's about high school kids that like time that time travel. Uh, it's apparently really good, but apparently has a very forgettable title. God damn it. <laughs> you know it's, called? It's, okay. it's on Netflix it's a time travel movie with teens and uh, uh, Christopher Lloyd plays the principal right? and, and they're talking about time travel and going back in time and, and he's like you've made a time machine? He's like, yeah and then they walk off and he goes great Scott and then he just leaves and it's awesome and he's there for like two yeah, minutes and I, I need to know yeah, the <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I'll uh, I'll look it up later. Uh, it's apparently really fun. Um, with murder mystery, in order to for me to give a shit, you have to care about the main character, and I do. The guy's a writer. Uh, he's like that. He's the old, suave, capable, uh, in his forties, uh, protagonist. But there are also, you know, other parts of the movie uh, throughout where he's clearly uh, feels like over it and over his head. Which is a great thing to do with the person that set itself so confident. Yeah, absolutely. Bring him down, you know, a few a few pegs. Uh, this isn't the first time that uh, like uh, the murder mystery author joins the detective, but it did become a massive trope later. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, I would continue with, uh, you know, programs like uh, Murder, She Wrote. Uh, I know there's an, another example out there. I just can't think of at the moment. Uh, Castle. Oh, yes. Yes, right. Uh, I've watched, not going to lie, too much Murder, She Wrote. Yeah, so do my parents. <laughs> <laughs> I watched like, uh, th- I think I watched three seasons of Castle, but I've watched every episode of Murder, She Wrote. It's great. Mm-hmm. Uh nice. Uh, I I really like um, I really like the way the cinematography and costume design uh, lets you see uh, everything like crispy and makes you feel different emotions. Like when he at the very end, after everything's sorted out, uh, he's like he, he's in a carriage or a taxi. I don't remember. Uh, and he gets out and he's just waiting for uh, the woman to walk to him and then she does and it takes forever and we're like you have to we're just waiting and waiting and waiting and you're like please just catch up and then she does and she's just and she doesn't look at him and just walks straight past him and instead of following her which is what literally anyone else would do he walks in the opposite direction Mm -hmm. it's such a great shot it is so much 
It really defines the whole uh, the whole movie, uh, in my opinion. How about the, about these characters and uh, you know where about conflicting loyalties and uh, uh, you know uh, black and white or gray? Uh, it, uh, that's just kind of the moment where, and it's it's just the perfect way to uh, just to just to end this uh, story with uh, every we finally you know we finally know where every character in this movie stands and uh uh trying to find a way to finish this <laughs> it just seems like the like the great ending like uh like how the story of these uh characters uh comes comes full circle they uh start off both of them start off in like a gray position with like yeah. we might join this guy we might not and one of them chose to join him, and the other one didn't. Right. Uh, even though they're like as morally complex as each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when uh, the third man uh, is brought to justice, she is pissed. Yep. <laughs> but I, I don't. I've heard that that was not. I don't know whether it's true or not. But that was actually not the original ending intended, and the original. Uh, ending, they do uh, end up together, but uh, I think I think it was Carol Reed, the uh, director, who uh, decided to go this route instead. And it, to, in my mind, it definitely works uh, so much better. There's lots of alternate endings. Almost all of them, all movies have an alternate ending that's much worse. Um, mm-hmm. Like in Little Shop of Horrors, I, everything's hunky dory, and then they move in. But in the original ending, which is much better. Uh, the plant just takes over the world. Yes, I uh, I have heard of that alternate, but I I don't know if it's uh, if there's like a version of that available. But uh, yeah, I have heard that that was uh, one of the endings. I I really like um, detective stories as a whole. My favorite character is Sherlock Holmes, mm-hmm. um, and I just read a bunch of Sherlock Holmes um, stories when I was like nine. And so, uh, so using that as the archetype, I like going to like different ways that detectives are brought in. Uh, my favorite right now is Lucifer because it's the devil and he's, a, and he's joined the police and he's very helpful because he has superpowers. Mm-hmm. Um, Lucifer's fucking great, man. The, the, um, it's a dark comedy uh, and they they uh, they go for the tropes, but but like in a way that you don't really know uh, that aren't done anymore. Like she's like he's like hey, so like you want to have sex? And she's like no, you have you're an egotist. You think you're the devil, and you're clearly just a dick. And he's like yeah, but like why not though? <laughs> and so for them. So when they finally do get together, it's because he's evolved as a character and been not a dick. Mm. <laughs> um, do you know any detective movies that play with the tropes? Uh, well, I mentioned a couple already, like The Maltese Falcon and Chinatown. And um, <clears throat> if you want to you know, look more to Humphrey Bogart, there's also uh, The Big Sleep. Uh, um, 
I can't remember because not all film noirs are uh, are detective stories. A lot of them, uh, a lot of them do center around detectives, but others, others are also about the average Joe, much like Joseph Cotton's character here, uh, and they're brought into this uh, this world of uh, good where they almost kind of have to play the detective, much much like uh, Joseph Cotton does. That's kind of how he uh, uncovers everything in this movie regarding. Uh, his uh, his friend's uh, dirty deeds in uh, in Vienna. Um, how the, the way that Buttercup works is um, someone who's not qualified to be a detective joins a detective, and mm-hmm. due to skills that they have in whatever job they're doing, that's how that works. Um, how does film noir bring in people that aren't qualified? to do detective work. Is it in that way? Um, I suppose, but there was another uh, Humphrey Bogart movie that's another film noir called, uh, I think it was called Dark Passage. It, it's almost like uh, uh, Think the Fugitive where he's uh, he's constantly uh, on the run from the law. There's uh, there's really no detective uh, work in that, in that movie at all. So I don't think it's uh, mainly about that. As I said, there's a, uh, a lot more to the the film noir genre than just uh, detectives. It also has to do uh, with this uh, it's sort of this place of darkness. That's where that nearly all of them take place, and it has to do with like themes of pessimism and fatalism and uh, menace. Whether it's uh, you know whether it's hidden or it's on the surface. So, um, like, it deals with crimes and the dark underworld and how dark the world can be. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, a great way to explore that is through a detective because they're a symbol of hope. Uh, of sorts, yeah. Even though, like, uh, like we said when this uh, podcast began, like, not, uh, y- you know, even they're not exactly, uh, you know, heroes themselves, even if they're on the quote-unquote correct uh, side of the law. I suppose. I, I'm wondering if there's um, examples of... Uh, film noir, which is just hopeless, and it's just like uh, there'll never be uh, anywhere out for um, these characters. I'm pretty sure there's uh, th- there are a few examples out there, but uh, I-, I can't think of any at the top of my head. Okay, so it's usually like so film noir is usually hope within the um, a hopeless world. Like this situation is hopeless, but thanks to our main character, um, where because we have hope well possibly uh i think yeah i think there's like a, a possible uh hope there uh like strangers on a train or uh, notorious those are other hitchcock uh films that uh that are considered uh film noir and they have you know protagonists uh well one of them is uh is a man uh falsely accused of murder and yeah, and yeah, we're kind of hoping that he'll uh, expose this uh, psycho who's framing him. Uh, as for Notorious, I can't really remember the plot of it very well, but I do remember that there was a uh, there was a feeling of hope in the, with Cary Grant's character as well, who's I, I think some sort of secret service agent in that movie. I think so. Yeah, in a in a way, there is. Uh, I think just like any in any other story, there's you know, it, uh, there's good and evil, but. Uh, but ni- neither the hero or the villain of that movie is 100% uh, good or evil. 
uh, morally gray characters. That must mm-hmm. be a response to the Western, where you literally have white hats and black hats. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want, when did it start? Do you know? Film noir. Uh, a lot of people like to think that it started out in the 1940s, but I think it, uh, it, it with you know movies like The Maltese Falcon. Uh, but I think it. It started even before that with the the James Cagney and the Edward G. Robinson uh, gangster films of the 30s. Uh, You have movies like Angels with Dirty Faces and uh, uh, Night Must Fall with uh, Robert Montgomery. Um, And uh, I think you can just, you know, pick uh, pick any Edward G. Robinson movie from the 1930s uh, out of a hat and you probably have a film noir right there. Looking up when M came out. M came out in 1931, and that's definitely film noir. I think, yeah, I think that could be a composite. I mean, I haven't seen it in full, but I do know of it. I, I you know, where you know Peter Laurie is uh, groveling on the on the floor. That's a great scene. It's much better in context. Yeah, I, I, I would imagine so. Um, it's uh, film noir is an interesting way to explore. Uh, moral ambiguity and whether or not for the greater good is a good enough excuse to do morally questionable things. Yes. And that's uh, one of my favorite TV shows right now. You like Lucifer. One of my favorites is, uh, unfortunately, it got canceled about three years ago. It's called A Person of Interest with uh, uh, Jim Caviezel, who played Jesus in uh, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ and uh, Michael Emerson of Lost. And uh, uh, basically, uh, Caviezel's character is a former, uh, uh, he's a former soldier and he's a former, uh, like, secret agent. And uh, he was presumed dead, but now he's, uh, he joins up with Michael Emerson's character. And they're both kind of running from their past uh, because Michael Emerson's character built this uh, machine for the government to track terrorism. Uh, but at the sa- um, and now he uses it to uh, help uh, combat uh, civilian crimes and prevent possibly prevent them before they happen. But in so doing, he's violating a lot of human rights as well, like the right of privacy, uh, which comes up through many many times uh, throughout the show. Which is, you know, they say that they're that they are doing it for the greater good, and you know, we do believe they are. But at the same time, are they? Do, should they really be doing this? Um, Christopher Nolan has um, explored stuff like that in the Dark Knight trilogy. It's like he was he was forced to do a Batman movie, but he's like, yeah, but like I want to do all this stuff as well. And they're like, fine, as long as you put Batman in it, you can do whatever you want. Yeah, like, and you know we've seen the, we've seen the standard. You know, they're through numerous TV shows and cartoons and even movies. Uh, you know, the standard. You know, Batman versus the Joker. But uh, but that, that uh, yeah, the uh, I'd say especially the uh, the second one, The Dark Knight, is definitely a film noir or at least a neo noir uh, film in and of itself. Does neo noir basically mean film noir but with uh, using color? Uh, I would think so. It's kind of the it's kind of paying tribute to the. Uh, to the genre of the uh, 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, movies like uh, Zodiac uh, or L.A. Confidential, those are, uh, those are examples of, uh, of neo noir. That's really cool. I need to watch um, more film noir just to get a feel of what makes it film noir versus just a mystery. 
and I and I also want to watch stuff that isn't a mystery that falls into the film noir um, genre. Be an interesting thing to explore later. Um, with uh, with the third man, uh, who's your favorite actor in it? Uh, definitely, I have to say, you know, Orson Welles. He only shows he only shows up throughout the. Uh, you know, towards the towards the end of the film, and he gets very very little screen time out of any of them. But he's he manages to steal the uh, and and you've got some you know you got really brilliant uh, actors there. You've got Joseph Cotton, yeah, and Alita Valley and uh, Trevor Howard, and he met and Orson Welles in just his like ten to fifteen minutes of screen time just steals the entire uh, two hour movie uh, away from all of them. The score in this is like really interesting. Cause it's like, yeah. Really it's yeah, it's really light, and uh, and when you first see Orson Welles, uh, when they reveal who the third man is, uh, mm-hmm. you and what his name is, and and who he relates to everyone, um, it feels cheeky. It's like, oh, look at him; he's got his smile. Look at him; uh, he's he's a fun character. Look, look, he's he's all charming and he's awesome. Wells and look at it, and the music is very upbeat. And like now, the music is just upbeat throughout the entire movie. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, there are parts where it turns a little bit sort of a uh, sort of a uh, mysterious. Uh, but uh, yeah, th- there's no orchestra, which is kind of which is a really unusual movie. It's just one. Uh, it's just a zither played by one man. <coughs> It's it's really interesting. It's like it's like those sil- the silent movies where um, people played the mus- the sound effects as they were going, or it, like in radio when they yes. tell stories, but they played the music live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and yeah, because the old uh, the, the old theaters they would play like a like the piano or the organ or even a guitar alongside uh, you know the silent films that were. Were going on in the time, uh, but uh, and I, I, I'm not sure whether it's really d- the zither in the, in the third man is really done to uh, uh, pay tribute to that, but uh, whatever it is, it's just it just it is an unusual move, and like a, a lot of other things in this in this movie, it just really adds to the uh, to the tension and to the uh, to this uh, sort of uh, uh, uneasiness about the unfamiliar, if. Uh, if you get what I mean by that, I I do. Um, I was I was thinking, huh? It's interesting that they pay tribute uh, that they pay tribute to silent movies. But then I'm like, wait a minute, silent movies was like tw- ten years ago. Because mm-hmm. this came out in like nineteen. When did this come out? Forty nine. Uh, it was released in so, uh, in uh, the United Kingdom in nineteen forty nine, and here in the states, it was released in early nineteen fifty. Okay, so silent movies were in the twenties. So, like thirty years ago, uh, you have silent movies, um, and before that as well. So, people in their forties and fifties probably grew up with probably grew up with silent movies, and when they were composing for music, that's what they had reference to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's interesting to see how like music and sound effects evolves through time when because it's usually like a 30 year gap that's when nostalgia is because people in their 30s now have like money and make movies of their own <coughs> uh, what do you think have you seen any silent movies 
Uh, yeah, quite a few. When I was taking like film history courses at the Academy of Art, we would watch uh, a lot of Charlie Chaplin, a lot of Buster Keaton, uh, especially the general. Um, also, uh, and even you know, even uh, like these uh, silent horror movies, like uh, like Lon Chaney or uh, Nosferatu. Uh, uh, yeah, Nosferatu. Uh, uh, the the man who laughs, which was the inspiration for Batman's Joker. Oh, really? Yeah. That's cool. Mm -hmm. uh, which is your favorite? Favorite silent movie? Yeah. Uh, probably, especially because it's one of the ones I, I've seen in full. Bust, uh, the, the General. Uh, Buster Keaton. He was such so phenomenal doing uh, you know, all his own stunts with that train. It had, it had a good plot, too, where he's this... Uh, in the, uh, it takes place in the Civil War where he's, uh, he's a train engineer... And he, uh, he tries to enlist in the Confederate Army, but they won't take him in because they think he's much more useful in the train, but they don't tell him this. So he, uh, uh, what, I don't remember whether it's unintentionally or, or, in, or intentionally, but he sort of becomes a, a spy for the Confederacy and infiltrates uh, Union ground. And he does, uh, he does his signature like stunt work, especially on board the train. And for that time, it's just so phenomenal because they, they didn't have the special effects that, uh, that we have now. Or like safety concerns because exactly. I'm willing to bet that even in like the 30s or whatever I could drop a house on someone and not have it potentially kill them yeah because <laughs> like uh, the, my favorite stunt because like he's, he's got shoes which are like glued or nailed on into the floor right so that he stands in the precise spot so he stands there and he has to look casual as a fucking house falls on him it's like that's <laughs> not Funny, that's terrifying. Yeah. Um, I'm openly um, a film fan around all my friends. So for my birthday, instead of getting me like a Marvel box set or whatever, uh, they got me the Charlie Chaplin uh, Essentials box set. <laughs> nice. So I got nice. like, all of his short films, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that's awesome. I like seeing films, especially like um, the things with the police or comedies within context. Um, the context around this film is like, it's just post-war and um, we defeated the Nazis. That's cool. But we still have like an economy to rebuild. Exactly. And that's, that, that's also what the, the rubble of uh, Vienna the, and the dark, uh, the dark alleys. That's that's what they kind of symbolize. That there's still, you know, darkness in this world. And uh, and of course, you know, Joseph Cotton's uh, friend uh, Harry Lyme, uh, he gets involved in uh, you know dirty business to uh, sort of make ends meet, and also to to play God, if you will. Yeah, and uh, even though he died before the movie starts, we have like his influence is still there. Like, um, we have all of his associates and we have everyone that was influenced by him, including the police. Because the police are essentially, if you want to focus on, like, we just defeated the Nazis, they were obvious bad guys because they were doing horrendous things. Mm -hmm. right? We got Hitler, he's an obvious bad guy. But now that we've gotten rid of the obvious bad guys, we have the underworld, which is still around and we still have to deal with. Yes, excellently put. <laughs> um, 
it's, it's really, really cool and really interesting to see, like, to s study, like, actual history and figure out the context of when movies were made. Like, right. uh, have you heard of a, a Mel Brooks film from the 80s, To Be or Not To Be? No, I have not. Okay. I've, I've heard of his other movies, but no, not really. Okay, so Mel Brooks remade a movie f uh, called To Be or Not To Be, which is essentially we're quoting Shakespeare and we're putting on plays, but also Nazis, because that's what he did. He does Nazi stuff, and yeah. it doesn't work at all. And, but he was remaking something, a movie that did that exact thing, right? Where right. they uh, talk to Nazis uh, and... They put on a play uh, and then mocking Nazis, but it was in 1942 mm. um, when the movie, when the original movie was made and it works much better then. Uh, Charlie Chaplin. I want to get into the great dictator with, um, with someone at some point, but Charlie Chaplin's the great dictator mocked Hitler uh, during when Hitler was still in power and his, and apparently Hitler saw the movie twice. It was mm -hmm. learning about history and having films that reflect history is, uh, that were made during that time are really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, actually Charlie Chaplin, believe it or not, was not the first actor to openly mock Hitler on film. I can believe it. Do you know who was? It was Mo Howard of the Three Stooges. <laughs> really? Yeah, it was. <laughs> what? Well, um, do you know what he did? Uh, what yeah, it was? Yeah, it was, it was his personal favorite short called You Nasty Spy. Uh, oh, where, uh, oh, what a great fun. Yeah. <laughs> where, uh, yeah, Mo uh, sort of becomes the uh, dictator of this uh, fictitious country called Moronica. And, and they poke fun at the, uh, at the Nazi uh, slogans, Moronica for morons. <laughs> That's awesome. And I want to see it. Yeah, you, um, you won't be disappointed. <laughs> Nazis are a great bad guy because, like, with, like, other propaganda movies, uh, like people that were fighting with Germany in World War II, um, they, they're super dated. By, but, like, Nazis were as bad as the propaganda said they were. So they're mm -hmm. easy to make fun of. So you have that stuff coming out in the 40s. You have the producers, which came out, like, a few years after World War II. Um, and my personal favorite title, I haven't seen the movie yet, but it came out like this year or last year, is The Man Who Killed Hitler and Then the Bigfoot. <laughs> like, what? How is it that you kill Hitler and that's not the only thing you're known for? <laughs> uh, making fun of Nazis is easy because like, they can be cartoon bad guys or like serious bad guys. <laughs> like oh the best example is in those three shoes because after the Unasdi spy after you know the United States was uh, fully integrated into World War II they uh, openly mocked Nazis in one of their one of their shorts where uh, Mo disguises Hitler uh, tells his uh, his uh, the, the the ones on, uh, the Nazis under his reg his regime you you failed to ask these spies blow out your brains and uh, the Nazi responds but Monsieur we are Nazis we have no brains. Obvious, but I like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, have you seen Downfall? Uh, no, I have not. Neither have I. But like that, that movie, that um, 
movie is apparently really dark, really good. Um, and it's about like the last few weeks uh, for Hitler, uh, before Hitler uh, killed himself and before World War II ended. Um, and it's, it's fucking great. You have things, um, and that the one scene where Hitler just goes in a rage has been mocked and remixed. Uh, oh, okay, so it is the movie I'm thinking of, yeah. Yeah, that, that was a meme for ages. But the thing is, uh, it doesn't work if you speak German. Yeah, <laughs> obviously. German, it doesn't work, which is why, like, in uh, The Great Dictator, uh, Charlie Chaplin starts off by making the, uh, the things that Hitler says nonsense. Mm-hmm. But then what I love is that throughout, and he's a silent film actor, so he's like, sound sucks. But throughout the film, he, the, the character of not Hitler, um, the, the hatred becomes more and more clear throughout until he's mistaken for um, a Jewish person and sent to a concentration camp. And Charlie mm-hmm. Chaplin said that he, if he knew what a concentration camp really was, he wouldn't have mentioned it at all. But uh, when he, th- when the Jewish person that's mistaken for Hitler has to make his final speech, because I thought that that speech was done by the not Hitler, but it's done by the Jewish person that looks exactly like Hitler. Um, and when like the sound is made very clear and everything is focused and finally we embrace what the sound, what sound is and the power of it, it's the person um, giving the hopeful kind speech that has all the power and not Hitler. It's really fucking good. Have you seen The Great Dictator? Cause like- Yes, yeah. That, I saw that scene like four times uh, and it's a great speech, but in context, it just works so much better. Yeah. Uh, especially, yeah. Cause I had heard of it, but I, I, I knew, I knew it was one of the very few sound films that Chaplin did, but I, it wasn't until I, you know, took those film history courses that I saw it in full and fully understood what all, what it was all about. It's, it's about people taking uh, the power of, vo- of the voice back from people that would misuse it. Mm-hmm. But also he's a silent film director. So there's a lot of like physical comedy. I want to talk about The Great Data with someone. Mm-hmm. Talk, I want to talk about it like in full. I really, really want to talk about it. But like, let's go back to The Third Man. I don't know how we kind of transition back. But with The Third Man, we have Orson Welles uh, and he has a solid fucking career. Uh, have you followed the careers of anyone else in this movie? Uh, uh, not really. I've, I'm mostly familiar with. I, I know before this, Joseph Cotton did Citizen Kane, of course, and he uh, and <coughs> then he then Shadow of the Doubt with uh, Hitchcock. And as for Trevor Howard, this was like his his, his breakthrough came playing the romantic lead in a Brief Encounter. But then he rose even further to fame with this, playing a, a role that. I think uh, most people associate uh, with him nowadays, this very, uh, very stuffy, very posh uh, authority figure. Uh, and it's, it's something a lot of us, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of viewers like about him uh, when you see it in, uh, 
it, you, it, it like Mutiny on the Bounty, the uh, remake with uh, Marlon Brando, and it, he was Captain Bly in that, and he was just so ice, icily, coldly evil in that movie, and just so brilliant. That's really cool. I just, I need to see that. <coughs> I need to follow these people. Um, I I only know Orson Welles from this. I haven't followed anyone else's career. I don't think I might have. I'm not sure. But I've only just uh, started watching classic films like a year ago, which is why I wanted to do this month to do like classic movies and talk about them and, and explain to people why they're important and why we need to preserve them. Um, because physical media is dying. And because of that, if it doesn't make money, people aren't going to bother saving it. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I got a bunch of movies on DVD because you can't get them online, which sucks mm-hmm. so hard. Absolutely. And another uh, actor with a notable uh, career in this, I guess, is uh, Bernard Lee, who played the uh, sergeant under Trevor Howard's uh, uh, command. He, he played uh, M in the Sean Connery and early Roger Moore uh, Bond films. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, is he, what character did he, did he play in this? He was, uh, oh, he was the sergeant. The sergeant. Sergeant Payne. So he, Sergeant Payne. Yes. That sounds like a G.I. Joe villain. <laughs> um, with, <coughs> um, I, I like how people think that uh, typecasting is bad and it is, but like, even when people aren't typecast, they play like similar roles. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw, uh, what is it? Uh, the Prime of Miss Jean Brody. Alright. Have you seen this? No. I'm gonna talk about it next week. Um, but uh Maggie Smith is in it. And mm-hmm. she plays exactly the same character as she does in Harry Potter. <laughs> like stern teacher, authority figure, that's like got something deeper going on uh inside but she doesn't but she hides it in order to be the authority figure for the main characters uh she's essentially playing professor mcgonagall (laughs) well didn't she win an oscar for that she might have i don't research these things uh academy award best actress in a leading role so yes okay so uh, okay i was well, it's uh, well, you know, playing those kind of roles seems to do her well. I mean, she's made a career out of it. Uh, she's one of those people that's been like old forever. It's like, yes, she was in this and she's in her 40s, but like it was made in the 50s, so she looks 65. Mm-hmm. <coughs> um, I, I, I love Maggie Sith. I shouldn't make yes. fun of her age. Um, I, I love looking at the careers of actors. Have you ever played Six Degrees of Separation? Uh, no. I have. And uh, someone's like, all right, why don't you do uh, connect Daniel Radcliffe with, uh, who's in his 20s, with an actor from the 20s? I'm like, oh, fuck. Oh, uh, now I know what, what game you're talking about. It's, yeah, here in America, we have a version called uh, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. That's cool. You know, Pick any uh, random actor, and somehow we managed to always trace it to Kevin Bacon. Um, which is cute, because he's been on a lot of things, but you can do that with every actor. Yeah, I suppose you can. 
but like doing that with Kevin Bacon is very funny. <laughs> Especially like um, someone on Wikipedia made a, uh, a movie, a fake movie. It's actually it's a real movie uh, called uh, The Gay Duck, mm-hmm. which is a, it's a terrible movie and never watch it. Uh, it's really, really bad. But someone <laughs> on Wikipedia put Daniel Day-Lewis in that. So, really? Yeah, so I looked up Daniel Day-Lewis and uh, Miley Cyrus, and they're like, they were in The Gay Duck together. And it's like, this is not a real movie. And no, they weren't. It's, it's so weird playing that game and finding that information. It's the weirdest bit of trivia that I know, and it's not even real. <laughs> oh, well. Um, when you were in film school, uh, you studied a lot of uh, old films. Did you find that you liked them more after you'd finished film school? I'd say a little bit of both of, uh, like, both during and after, because even though I didn't really get into old movies too much uh, until after my father showed me The Grapes of Wrath, I still there were still a few films uh, from the golden age that we, sh- that they showed that, uh, that I really, really enjoyed. Like, uh, uh, it happened one night and, uh, the grapes of wrath. I just found myself completely falling in love with movies. I think, I, I think I know the grapes of wrath. The grapes of wrath, isn't that like a tragedy? Uh, sort of. Yeah. It's a great, it's a film about the great depression, about the, these, this Oklahoma family that's, uh, uh, trying to, you know, get to California in hopes of uh, landing work and uh, making ends meet. And it's, yeah, and of course, they're far from the only ones, you know, trying to make that journey. Um, I I had a synopsis of it, and these guys on, on a podcast called Cinephiles, um, they did uh, a an analysis of it, and I'm like, I'm never watching this movie. It sounds horrendous. Right, not because it's bad, because it's just so sad, and I can't deal with like that level of like of sadness in a movie. No, the actually the book, the original book by John Steinbeck, is even is even more sad. I can deal with sadness in a book. I don't know what it is about me, but in a book, I'm like, it's a book, so fine. But like when you when when movies are also like. Uh, known for like blockbusters and having fun there's a certain level that you're just like but like you're pushing it too far with the sadness so i i can't watch it i saw uh grave of the fireflies though oh yeah that's basically the level i'm at with how sad i can get a movie to be and still enjoy it (laughs) that's not the right word but like i can still watch it and appreciate it uh even though it's soul crushing yeah, well, I I kind of have that with uh, with Schindler's List, which is which even as heart wrenching as it is, is still one of my favorite movies. I've owned Schindler's List for about four years. I haven't seen it. <laughs> I, every time I every time I look at it, I'm like, I should watch it, and then I watch literally anything else. Well, when you do, just have a box of tissues handy. Yeah, no kidding. Um, I I think I'm only gonna watch Schindler's List if someone brings it up on the podcast. It's like my favorite movie, Schindler's List. I'm like, oh, damn it. I'll just quit the podcast. Oh, well, it, it's fun. It, it's, a, it's, it's interesting going through uh, movies and experiencing different emotions. Uh, 
mainly just happiness and sadness, but also sometimes um, anger. And I haven't experienced disgust yet because I don't think people actually want to make movies that are disgusting unless they're like weird horror movies like Human Centipede. I can't believe we talked about The Third Man followed by Human Centipede. I'd like to apologize to everyone that's listening. (laughs) Um, Anyway, anything else you want to talk about? Because we I think we've covered uh, pretty much everything that there is to talk about this uh, amazing movie. You know, if it's a, uh, if you can find like a, a copy of a DVD or something, yeah, definitely get it. Next time it's playing on TCM, watch it. Uh, you, I found it. Certainly... On, I found it on Google Movies, so <laughs> you can rent it from uh, from the internet as well. So that's fun. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it. I don't know if uh, it's if it's on Netflix in Australia, but uh, here in the states, it's it still is. Yeah. Oh. I just watched it before this uh, this interview, so it would be fresh in my head. That's cool. Um, is there anything else you need to talk about? Uh, anything we missed? Uh, no, I think we covered uh, every, everything there is, everything that I was actually intending to talk about regarding uh, this, this really amazing movie. Cool. And we also talked about your, your film school and your dad introducing you to classic <laughs> movies and how important classic <laughs> movies are. So I, I think we're good. Yeah. Uh, so thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you uh, for having me. Uh, go watch more classic movies. Uh, you don't just have to watch superhero movies. It's fine. People get bored really easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the conversation on modern blockbusters keeps changing. So go back and watch it and start a new conversation about old movies. Um, is there anything you would like to promote? Um can't think of anything right now okay um i'm daniel uh the aussie nerds podcast uh is weekly we talk about uh people's favorite movie with uh and invite them on if you have a favorite movie that you want to talk about uh and you want to be on that's cool definitely do that reach out to me on twitter i'm at aussie nerds pod you can reach me there best i'm also on facebook aussie nerds uh, subscribe to this feed that way you'll get uh, this podcast every Thursday Australian time or Friday or Wednesday whatever uh, your time I don't know how time works uh, I'm on Letterboxd uh, I make lists and log uh, what movies I've watched if you're like hmm that's a weird obscure and old movie it's either because I'm weird obscure and old or because someone recommended it for the podcast so that might be a sneak peek Uh, until next time, goodbye.